What I see as the greatest threat to the Republic as we know it, to, to American democracy, is the undermining of institutions and the cynicism that so much of the populace feels. I'm Ken Harbaugh. This is Burn the Boats, a show about making tough calls in tough times. America today faces a critical test. Our democracy is under threat, but good people are rising to the challenge. Now is the time to go all in. Now we burn the boats. My guest today is Dan Barkoff, a former Navy SEAL who now serves as an emergency medicine physician. He's also the founder of Veterans for Responsible Leadership, an organization dedicated to empowering veteran voices to hold political leaders accountable. The organization began as a response to then President Trump's abuse of power. And ever since, Dan has been a leading voice in calling out such abuses wherever he finds them. Dan, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thanks, Ken. Happy to be here, man. This will be fun. Yeah, I, I probably should have mentioned that you and I have a history fighting alongside each other, calling out the frauds in, in our community, the veteran community, uh, wherever we see them. I'm also on the board of VFRL. And we're both dads. We like to commiserate about the challenges and the joys of fatherhood. I, I understand you were on duty this morning getting your kids out <laughs> through yeah, an ice storm. How'd it go? You know, we got, we got about an eighth of an inch of ice, so it was one of those, uh, and it's now changing over to snow. So it, this podcast is about uh, climate change, right? That's what we're talking about. <laughs> it can be about whatever you want, um, but I gotta I gotta rest on your credibility a bit as a as a Navy SEAL knocking down doors in, in Iraq. Did ever you imagine back then that you would be shuffling kids through ice storms and being a political activist on the side? I don't think uh, I don't think any of us, uh, you know, figured what what middle age would have in store for us, right? No, I certainly didn't. What made you go the medical school route after being on the front lines as a as a Navy SEAL? Yeah, it's a good question. So the short answer is, I was mad at the Navy and wanted to get out and do something completely different. And you know, in hindsight, I shouldn't have been mad at the Navy, but it, you know, had to do with orders and, and things like that. And I was like, well, I'm going to get out and do something totally different. And, you know, I was young and single at the time. And medicine had always been something I'd sort of been interested in. The medical community, I thought, and I think I was right about in general, a lot of the same stuff that I enjoyed about the military can be found in medicine. Obviously, the mission is entirely different, but, you know, the the people that you surround yourself with in both environments um, is is really kind of similar in a lot of ways. You know, you're, you're doing a, you know, quote unquote mission, you're working together, you're surrounded by people who want to be there, who self-selected to be there. You know, no one becomes a, a trauma nurse by accident, right? It's, it's something that you, you get to. That sense of teamwork, that sense of kind of belonging, and for me as a physician, a little bit of that sense of leadership um, was present in, in both communities. And, and so that's, that's what I thought I would find and, and what I ended up finding. You've extended that mission-oriented thinking to the political arena. What was the prompt for VFRL? Was there a moment when you said to yourself, We've got to stand up. We've got to organize because this commander in chief, President Trump, is betraying all the values that we swore to uphold. Yeah, but you know what? You know what's crazy, Ken, is when I look back on it, the moment that I was like, I got to get up off the couch seems so 
trivial at this point after all that happened, right? Because VFRL was from 2017. And the thing that, you know, kind of inspired me to, to rally, you know, rally some folks and, and start working on this was the original Michael Flynn stuff you know, lying to the FBI about conversations with Russia and, and lying to the then Vice President Mike Pence. And, um, you know, it, Michael Flynn, even more so than than Trump, was kind of the thing where I was like, I, we got we to gotta do something. I, I'd always been anti-Trump. When, when VFRL started, I had two daughters and, you know, gra- grab them by the pussy was fresh in my mind. But really looking back on it, I've said this before, maybe even on your podcast, like I thought Trump was going to be terrible, but he vastly exceeded the, you know, the terribleness that I thought he would, he would brand. Why is it important that veterans in particular organize and, and speak up even yeah. today after the, the defeat of Trump in 2020? There's a whole lot in there to unpack. So, I mean, you know, veterans and the military in general are, a respected institution, right? You know, if you look at kind of public opinion polling, veterans are the second most respected organization behind small business owners. And, you know, way, way down the bottom is Congress, right? And so they bring a credibility to anything that they attach themselves to. And I saw a lot of veterans attaching themselves to Trump. You know, there were people who... I respected, aside from Michael Flynn, who were willing to go in and serve, you know, people like James Mattis, people like H.R. McMaster, who who went in and I get the argument that some of them made at the time, like, hey, you know, I'm going to be the adult in the room. You know, I'm, they're asking me to be the national security advisor. It's better me than somebody else. But many veterans were also, you know, openly uh, campaigning for this guy. And I it seemed one-sided at the time. And there weren't a lot of voices in the veteran community who were willing to speak out. The military tends to skew conservative uh, in general. And there's, there's different variants amongst different parts of the military. So, you know, Marine Corps enlisted folks were the most likely to vote for Trump. Air Force officers and, and naval officers were the least likely to vote for Trump. But, but you know, it, it was relatively close. So there were, there were people speaking out in favor of him being elected. You know, there were SEALs speaking out in favor of him being elected. You know, you got Marcus Luttrell speaking at a convention. You've got Dan Crenshaw speaking at a convention. And I was like, hold on a second. The guys, the guys I know don't feel this way. I don't feel this way. And so there was kind of a one-sided narrative and VFRL was an attempt to, uh, to push back on that. As much credibility as veterans still do retain in this country, you and I are both vets who have deep misgivings about uh, the, the lionization of vets. And I'm actually quoting you from one of your recent Resolute Square articles. You wrote, the lionization of military service, the military aesthetic, and military weapons in the vacuum of civilian online existence is the most salient threat to the Republic since the Civil War. That's a pretty bold statement. Yeah, and I think it's true. And I think it it holds up. So what I see as the greatest threat to the Republic as we know it, to, to American democracy, is the undermining of institutions and the cynicism that so much of the populace feels, right? You know, 
how did Trump get elected, right? It was like drain the swamp, right? People view politics and politicians very, very negatively. And so when, you know, that what we're just talking about, right, this credibility that veterans give, you know, using that, weaponizing that, right? That, that got weaponized by MAGA. And they're saying, hey, look, we're, we're, good. we're the good guys. And, and that's a thread that you see in all, uh, you know, fascist and neo-fascist movements throughout history. I mean, Mussolini did the same thing. The Nazis did the same thing, right? These are, these are known playbooks. This is right out of an authoritarian playbook, which is, you know, everything martial is to be lauded. You know, it's the opposite sort of of this, uh, you know, this individualism and this um, this conversational democracy that that we ought to and that we have in America and, and have had for two hundred years. And so, when we put people who served on a pedestal, right, and we say that hey, whatever this guy says is is great, you get people like you know you get people like Michael Flynn as a national security advisor. Right, he he just rode into a, a position, a very important position, based on credibility, which was essentially, you know, you know, not there. And so, when I talk more about lo- the lionization of military aesthetic, the military service, but without the safeguards that the military provides, right? Like we we live in a society now where I can drive. I live in Vermont, so it's about twenty minute drive, but I can drive twenty minutes, walk into a store walk out with an AR-15 with a high cap mag, H gear. I can get basically camis. I probably can pick up body armor within an hour of here. I can totally outfit myself just like I was, you know, about to kick indoors in Fallujah minus an encrypted radio, right? That's probably the only thing I can't get. And when we have that without a commander in charge of me, uh, a tasking a commander, a Jasodif, you know, telling telling people where to go without a senior enlisted saying, "Hey, this is this is a good idea. This is fucked up," and and we just leave our decision making and our influences to you know what we see on various chat rooms or Facebook. I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. And, and the ability to do that isn't just available. It's 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 not just accessible. People are doing it. I mean, gun sales have gone through the roof. More. Guns were sold last year than ever before. More guns will probably be sold this year than last year. And you have tied that to uh, to this idea of you know twisted masculinity and the politicization of of fear. It's interesting that you bring up Mussolini because we just had Ruth Ben Giat on the show who talked about the use of virility and masculinity okay. in far right movements to drive people mostly young men into the into the arms of these neo-fascist and and fascist uh, movements i think you bring special credibility to this conversation as as a navy seal but can you talk about real men because you wrote this incredible essay for resolute square about the the perversion of this idea of masculinity that that real men are supposed to make those around them afraid yeah you know, young boys transitioning to adulthood, right? You know, it, I, I was this way growing up. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be like my dad, right? I wanted to be a man. I wanted to, you know, chop wood with a mall, you know, 
all the other, you know, paint the house, drive a car, whatever it is, the stuff that that little boys see men doing, right? And and so I ascribe to that. And that doesn't go away as you move into kind of later adolescence where all of a sudden your dad's like the biggest dork ever, you know? And you're, you're, you're like, oh, I don't want to wear those jeans. Like I look like my dad, right? But you still want to be a man in society. And that's a really, really a timeless thing. In Native American ceremonies, there's, you know, a sweat lodge or, you know, you have to go and, and, and hunt and, and kill a, a wild animal or, you know, something like that. And in Western societies, you know, we, we mark this transition from school to the workplace. You know, we, uh, you get your union card and, you know, you're working in the factory alongside your uncles and your dad, right? And so now that stuff, as we've transitioned to this modern economy, people are not kind of getting their masculine identity through their job, right? And that is a big change. And so I think there's this generation of folks who are kind of looking for something, to some tribe to belong to, to feel like a valued part of a tribe. And that's a universal human feeling that we've all had for millennia. And you know, human human survival is is based on that, right? It's it's you have to be valuable to the tribe, and and then the, therefore the tribe will value you. And so that hasn't changed. That's human nature. What has changed is we've lost this tribe economically. You know, working for Uber Eats, well, maybe it pays the bills or whatever. You know, it's not the same as. Um, you know, in 1920, you know, working with your your extended family in a coal mine, right? Like it's it's different. Some of it is a lack of kind of physical danger and and you know doing manly jobs, right? You know, I I use air quotes like, and so people are people are lost. You know, young men are lost. And what can replace it? Well, I mean, they're buying guns and body armor. I mean, it's 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 identical to when I was a kid. I used to wear the the Patriots quarterbacks, you know, jersey, right? I'm a ten year old boy, and so they're doing the same thing. It's not a football jersey; instead, it's a it's body armor. Do you think the Josh Hollies and Ted Cruz's of the world they almost all fall in the the far right of the political spectrum are aware of their cynicism or are they uh, are they projecting uh, i i just think it's funny that the least and i'll use the air quotes to the least manly politicians out there are the ones writing books about manliness or in cruz's case lionizing russian military recruiting ads while mocking american military recruiting ads i mean these are not guys I would want my kids, my sons or daughters looking up to in any way. I think it's disingenuous, right? Like politicians are, they're good at sniffing out what works, right? And so, you know, I don't know how many downloads Josh Hawley gets, but, you know, I'd imagine he's going to keep doing it as long as he gets a fair number of it, right? And so it's, it, it goes back to this, you know, sort of search for, for meaning, I think. Um, and we used to, um, you know, as men have, have pretty clear roles and, 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 and I don't mourn the loss of that, that don't, don't take that the wrong way. I'm not saying that, um, you know, it was better than or anything of the sort, but 
you know, it was sort of more clearly defined. Um, and, you know, now I, I work in a job I love, a job that I had that, you know, there's there's a lot of meaning that I attach to it. And it's it's mostly women. And folks are having a hard time with that or finding meaning. They're trying to find meaning, right? Like that's, you know, that's um, the guy that I would as, uh, aspire to be like as a leader would be someone like Ernest Shackleton, right? Who, uh, if you've read, have you read Endurance? I have. Yeah, I, I, I have that quote. So I used to have it up on my wall, the, the request for applications to join his expedition. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for, for any listener who might not know, I mean, great book, old book, Endurance, who's about Ernest Shackleton, who's this British explorer. He's in his early 40s. He's about to, he's trying to get to the South Pole and his, his ship gets wrecked in the Antarctic ice and they're stranded and they're facing an Antarctic win, winter, you know, which summertime up here. And they are, you know, one could very easily imagine, you know, oneself panicking in such a situation. And it's, it's a textbook of, of leadership and a textbook of, of meaning. One of the, one of the coolest, you know, things, and I think it speaks directly to this point is, you know, Shackleton had, there was this one guy on the crew who was, uh, you know, kind of cynical and he was like, ah, oh, we're all going to die. Like, you know, this, this sucks. And, and, you know, this is a bad spot. And he was worried that, you know, this is the person who's going to, you know, his morale is going to kind of poison the whole expedition. And we're going to have people who are all of a sudden not, um, you know, th their morale is going to plummet and that's going to lead to to a bad outcome. So Shackleton takes the guy and was like, hey, you're rooming with me. You know, they have like two man tents and he's like, you're my roommate. And so, you know, he basically kept an eye on him and and made sure that he had something to do. Right. He had a job to do. Um, you know, he would he would go out in the morning and, you know, take the temperature and, and that sort of thing. And and he made sure that this guy felt valued and felt important. And as a result, you know, that the morale of the expedition did not plummet. And they and in fact they survived. You know, they they all survived this this winter in Antarctica. And it's that need for for value that I think is missing from the equation. Right. It's it's this need to contribute. And I think we ask too little of, you know, young men. Should we bring back the draft? <laughs> no. So, yeah. So, you know, I love thinking about that. Right. Like, you know, it's different in, in the piece I wrote when we when we chatted about that. You know, the draft we went away from the draft for economic reasons. And primarily we drafted people because they were like, oh, it's prohibitively expensive to pay these guys enough to go to Vietnam and, you know, hump around a, a rice paddy. And same thing in World War II. And we don't need that, right? Like we meet, we make our recruiting goals. No one would argue, no one would stand for a draft. Um, you know, I think that is a, is a, an exercise in kind of intellectualizing, you know, but but the draft had an effect on the society that it served, aside from just military preparedness. So because of a draft, you took people from all over the country and, you know, you put them together uh, in a military unit and they worked towards, you know, a common goal. They deployed together. They learned things about other parts of the country, other segments of society. And they, they you know, the the... 
the shine was off of military service, right? You know, the reason you didn't have Vietnam vets parading around in old school H gear with, you know, M4 teams in the 70s and 80s is because that doesn't see, you know, it's like, I did that, been there, done that. I don't need to like, you know, march around and, and sort of fantasize about violence. I know what that looks like. And we don't have that anymore. So a better question would be, how do we give, how, what do we ask of these, you know, young men uh, and, and they're largely all men who are coming into, you know, coming into adulthood. Like, what do, what do we ask of them? Because I, I don't think the way to get the best United States of America is to ask nothing of them. I've always found composting to be too inconvenient and too messy to stick with. But then I got a Lomi. Lomi allows me to turn all of my food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps to dirt in under four hours. There's no smell when it runs, and it's really quiet. And thanks to Lomi, I have way less garbage each week. And our family garden is now filled with dirt made from kitchen scraps. Since I got my Lomi, I throw out way less garbage. That means it's not going to landfills and producing methane. Instead, I turn that waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants. It feels great knowing that I'm composting and creating something useful soil instead of adding to landfill waste. I have a basically limitless supply of dirt for my garden. The other week we had in-laws over for my daughter's birthday party and the food cleanup was a breeze. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is the answer. Head to Lomi.com slash boats and use the promo code boats to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash boats and use promo code boats at checkout. Food waste is gross. Let Lomi save you the hassle of a cold trip out to the garbage can while filling your garden and doing right by the planet. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Do you have an answer to that question? Is there something short of military service? Because I'm with you 100%. There are mirrored reasons not to bring back the draft. Um, but is there something which can stand in its place to create that that sense of of community and responsibility to something greater than oneself, and I think most importantly, a sense of a common purpose as as a country. What defines us is what we're working towards, not how different we are from each other. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the short answer is not not now, right? Like not as it exists now, right? So you know, there's every every you know. 
10 years or so, some, uh, someone calls for like national service. And I don't know if that's the answer, right? Like, you know, there have been attempts in American history aside from the military to, to do that. I mean, in the Great Depression, right, you've got like the Civil Conservation Corps and, you know, things like this. The Tennessee River Valley Authority, you know, we had we had a way of, and those were largely employment programs, right? But they also had a similar effect of kind of bringing people together and, and giving them a purpose. So I don't know that the answer is a big government program, right? You know, maybe it's not. Maybe it's, um, you know, you can find meaning through a lot of different things, but a life of, a life without meaning Oh, meaning, sorry, uh, a life of, you know, relative privilege, a life of relative safety, a life of, of relative selfishness is, is not the answer. I mean, it makes people miserable. This is, you know, every study that's ever been done on this topic, you know, it shows that if you don't feel valued, you feel depressed and, and anxious and, and miserable. I mean, this is, this is a known medical fact, you know, uh, I'll give you a, a brief example that, you know, in the emergency department, we um, we often deal with folks who are in a mental health crisis. And, you know, there are folks who are, you know, having suicidal thoughts or maybe they had a suicide attempt or, or something like that. And if you, you know, something I'll tell the med students or the residents, if you come into me and, you know, you say, uh, you know, you're going to kill yourself if... Uh, you don't get into, you know, your your favorite college or or whatever, or you don't get a car for your birthday or something like that. You're not going to kill yourself. That's that's borne out by evidence. It's called conditional suicidality, and it it doesn't lead to suicide. If you come in, you know, and you're a, I don't know, a 60 year old male who's got a firearm at home, who is feeling depressed and doesn't have a family and feels alone and feels like they're not contributing anything to anyone, you're like the most highest risk. That Those are the people who complete suicides, right? Are people who are middle-aged and lost. And so this, you know, has, you know, Sebastian Younger, a mutual, uh, mutual friend of ours, he talks at length about this, you know? So it's, it's finding value and finding meaning in service to others whether it's, hey, I've got to keep it together because, you know, my grandma lives with me and, and she's got a bad hip and I, I take care of her, right? That's one way to find meaning. As, as much as I, you know, rip on folks like Jocko, um, you know, if your meaning in life is to get a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, sure, go for it, you know? Um, if your meaning in life is, hey, I'm the crossing guard uh, at a kid's elementary school, and, you know, I make sure the kids don't get hit by a bus, right? Everyone can contribute. No, there's, it's a fallacy that no one can contribute to, to other people. And, and so service gives people self-worth. It gives people a positive outlook. So many of our fellow veterans, though, have found that, that sense of value and meaning and this perverted idea of service from joining organizations like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. I bet if you talk to, and friends of ours have done this, the majority of the insurrectionists on January 6th, even the veterans among them, or especially the veterans among them, thought at the time that they were the ones fighting for 
the Constitution. How do you how do you make that distinction? How do you educate people about the the noble forms of service and the ones that that are are really being manipulated by the Ted Cruz's and Josh Hawley's of the world? It's hard. It's really really hard. I mean, this this shit is baked into our DNA as a nation, right? Like. You know, what, what do you learn about when you learn about the American Revolution? You learn about like the Sons of Liberty, right? And, you know, it's a big problem. And, you know, having people who uh, find meaning and find their purpose by literally plotting to, you know, kidnap and execute elected officials or plotting to uh, start a civil war on the steps of the Capitol who genuinely believe that they're doing the right thing is a tough nut to crack, right? So, I mean, it's funny. I was talking to um, Chris Goldsmith the other day and, you know, Chris, and, and Chris has done kind of a lot of work sort of in this space. And, and he's talking about, you know, I, I kind of was like, you know, how many of these people are salvageable? And he didn't really have a good answer, but he was like, I mean, some, right? But some of them just like to hurt people. Right. And we all know people like that. We all know people who just like to hurt people. I've seen them everywhere in my life. They were in elementary school. They were in high school. They were in the military. They were in the SEAL teams. I've seen it in medicine. I've seen it. Everyone can think of someone who just, you know, they just want to hurt other people. They're just assholes. And so these neo-fascist movements, things like Patriot Front, things like the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, you know, the Proud Boys, right? A certain percentage of them are just assholes who like to hurt other people. And yeah, maybe there's a few people who, you know, through literal rehabilitation could be, you know, contributing members of society, but it's it's pretty tough to to think you're going to salvage someone who um, is willing to sit in the back of the U-Haul and, and drive 12 hours to Philadelphia to, to beat up black people, right? So it, it's bananas. I mean, it's, it's really, really hard. What's uniquely American about our population of, uh, of assholes, as, as you describe them, though, is the ubiquity of guns. Yep, uh, and and there's this this other quote that I'm drawn to from a recent essay of yours in Resolute Square about, you know, just how how cheap and easy it is to substitute the the firearm for all the military uh, experience and training that you get when you've actually been downrange, actually seen what war looks like, um, and and your your quote, I think it's great, is is this the military aesthetic carried an insidious component, never overtly stated, but ultimately ready to seep out into the world. Warriors need enemies. For actual operators, these were provided as part of the deal. Transnational terrorists intent on destabilizing allied governments in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. But you have this, what feels like an entire generation of young people, mostly men, who are looking for enemies to provide that sense of, of purpose and camaraderie. Yeah. It's, you know, this whole thing about the, you know, the warrior mindset, right? Like, you know, all this stuff, which, which I think is a bunch of hogwash, really, you know, I, I'm interested in, in being the best citizen I can be. Um, an aspect of that has included 
in my younger days, um, being part of a, a military unit. Um, the way in which you can feel manly by picking up a weapon of war has been around forever, right? You know, there's this, uh, have you ever read the, uh, the Fall of Berlin by Anthony Bevor? I haven't. So, you know, it's, it's a great book. He's this British historian, you know, it goes through kind of the fall of, of Berlin in World War II. And, um, you know, a lot of kind of interesting accounts from the Red Army folks who's ultimately like stormed the Reichstag and, and stuff like this. And there's this one Russian, uh, you know, lieutenant who the day, you know, the day after the, uh, you know, the surrender, right? There's no more gunfire. And there's two little German boys playing, you know, swords with, like a wooden sword, you know, they're just fencing and it, it's in our nature, right? And so if you can't channel it appropriately, it's, it's just deep pathology. The people who think that all there was to being in the military was, you know, putting on some body armor, getting a cool gun, and then kind of patrolling along the street with your friends are, it's so, um, it's just so far from, you know, all, you know, think of how we're like indoctrinated in the military, right? Like you go to boot camp or you go to OCS or, or whatever, and it's, it's weeks, right? It's weeks before you touch a gun at all. And then when you finally take it out of the armory, they put the fear of God into you. And, you know, you march to the range and you get like one round and you shoot your first bullet ever and... You know, then you have to clear and safe your rifle and there's some scary drill sergeant kind of, you know, looking over your shoulder, like literally right behind you. And every time you check out a weapon in the military, even in the SEAL teams, you know, you check out a weapon and it's like, you know, there's somebody else there, there's two-person integrity, you know, you're going to an organized range, you know. Nobody like in the military checks out like an AT4 and just rolls around with it in case they need it. It's it's insane to think that this is, you know, what we do in the military. It's not. It's not at all. It's not even close to what we do in the military. You know, so it's it's really just this this facile worship of of a weapon of war in an attempt to feel manly. And it's it's rooted in ignorance and it, it's led to, I mean, it continues to lead daily to disastrous consequences. Yeah, I would argue it's rooted in insecurity as well. The idea well, that that carrying on AR-15 makes you a, a bigger or a braver person actually signals to anyone who's done that in a war zone the exact opposite. And it doesn't make you feel more free. You've written about this as well. If you're a responsible gun owner, it is, well, it's a responsibility. It is a, it is a burden. Can you, can you, can you talk about the, the freedom costs of being a responsible gun owner, especially I mean, as a veteran? Yeah, exactly. I mean, even in the, you know, very kind of simplistic, like day-to-day -day sense Carrying a gun around with you is, um, that is what you're doing, right? Like if you have a gun on your hip, uh, you know, if you're wearing uh, a CQB sling with a AR, you know, over your shoulder, that is what you're doing, right? Like you're not, you know, stopping to play at, stopping to wrestle with your kid in the living room, right? Like you're not, um, you know, 
going, you know, picking up groceries at the grocery store, you, you're carrying a weapon and that your entire being while you have that weapon on is you're looking, you're looking for threats, right? You're like the, you know, it's, it's this mindset of, well, if I have a gun, you know, then I'm good to go. And, and you know, if something bad happens, I'll be ready. And it's like, well, the very, very rare instances where, and they're exceedingly rare, where, you know, something quote unquote bad is going to happen and you're going to stop it with a firearm um, is, you know, let's call it like one-tenth of one percent of the time, which is a gross over-exaggeration, right? Like most of the time, you're going to be walking around in a peaceful population. You're going to be at the shopping mall. You're going to be at the grocery store in your kid's Little League game. And it limits you in what you can do if you're if you know what you're doing with a firearm, right? Like you can't take it off. You can't leave it in the car so you can just, you know, zip into the gym, right? Like you can't, you know, there are places you literally can't go, right? Like you can't carry it in a, you know, a federal office building or something like that. It's incredibly cumbersome. You know, ask anyone who's been overseas, you know, what's the, what's the best thing about coming home? It's like turning in the weapons at the armory and then all of a sudden you're free again. It's this literal lie that's been told to gun owners that, you know, having this firearm makes you free. It, it doesn't make you free. It makes you responsible all the time for, you know, potentially ending someone's life. Yeah, or not. I mean, the, yeah. the prevalence of irresponsible gun owners is borne out in just the number of senseless murders from things like fender benders and uh, and arguments in in parking lots, uh, and to me, it's it's as much about the mindset shift that carrying a gun forces on you as it is the additional responsibility. There, I, I wrote this piece a while back that in, included a reference to this scale of alertness and. Yeah. You know, it starts with being in in the green where you're enjoying life and not worried about much. And the advice to gun owners was live in the yellow. Live what? always wondering if that person approaching you on a sidewalk might be a threat. Um, and, and you, I think, articulate it better than than I ever could in this this quote in your piece. You talk about the power of being able to, on a moment's notice, kill your fellow citizens demands complete and total respect at all times. It demands concentrations. It demands you view every person you see with that gun on your hip as a potential threat, and that's not freedom. Yeah, it's it's not, right? Like, I don't want to go to my kid's Little League game and be like, hmm, I might have to kill all these people. And, you know, like, that's that's an insane way to live. It's not freedom. It's It's the opposite of freedom. It's having the most, you know, the top of the pyramid of your attention is, uh, you know, carrying around a lethal weapon. You know, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me. What do we do at this point? This is American exceptionalism run amok. We've got 400 million guns out there now. What do you say as a, a Navy SEAL who's deployed to theaters of war multiple times to the people who say the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, just that's demonstrably untrue. If you look at FBI statistics, um, there were a few years back, I sat on a, a, a panel for, for violence uh, in community violence in Vermont. 
And we got some interesting st stats from the FBI that, you know, just showed that the number of active shooter situations in which they're stopped by, you know, the good guy with the gun is, is tiny, less than, less than 5%. You know, most often these shooters, these mass shooters um, end up killing themselves. Second most often is they're killed by the police. Um, and, you know, way, way, way down the list is, you know, in fact, I think it's, it's like single digits, um, you know, that an active shooter has been, been taken down by another citizen with, with a firearm. So and the cost of that, of course, is so many guns out there carried by people who think they're going to be the hero end up right. killing innocent people. Right. And, you know, I mean, it plays into this like American fantasy. I, well, I can only speak for America. I can't, you know, because we are American, but think of how many, how much of our sort of the canon of our artwork is, is related to like justifiable violence, right? Like, you know, you've got Liam Neeson, who's like 900 years old and every six months he releases a new movie where his daughter gets kidnapped and it's like, you know, grosses 200 million at the box office. And, and, we have this sort of, I mean, it's a fantasy. It's a, this fantasy of justified violence. Like that's so, that's as American as apple pie is that someone's going to do something bad and, you know, I'm going to be able to, to do something uh, violent and harmful to this person. And I don't know if that exists in other countries or if, it, if it's kind of unique to us, but it's undoubtedly kind of part of our, our, uh, our canon of, of, you know, and you see it everywhere. So what, what we, what should we do? Right. So I think it starts with some common sense changes, right? I don't think you should get a gun when you're 18. I, I mean, I think you should get a gun, you know, if you're going to buy a gun, I think you should be 21, right? Many of these people who go back and shoot up their high school are in that 18 to 21 year old range. You know, people make the argument that, oh, you can be 18 and serve in the military. Yeah, you can. It's a bunch of bullshit. It's like, yeah, you can be 18 and serve in the military where you have a sergeant who's done two tours in Iraq, staring over your shoulder, making sure your chamber's empty before you clean it, right? So the argument that, you know, you're 18, you should be able to buy a gun, I, I don't, that doesn't hold water with me. So that's what I would do. I would, I would raise, you know, for starters, I think you have to be 21 to own a firearm. Now, do we need these military weapons of war in our streets? No, we don't. Um, if, you, if you can't ban them, then, you know, we had an assault weapons ban in this country for years. Um, if you can't ban them, then I think, you know, there, there needs to be training uh, for them. I think they're, you know, and, and I think we can put pressure on, uh, you know, if we can't pass these laws, I think we can put pressure on the people selling the guns, right? Can you sue the, uh, you know, if, you, if your husband uh, walks into a gun store, buys a nine mil and blows his head off, can you sue the person who, you know, sold him that gun? I mean, as it stands right now, you can't, right, in, in most jurisdictions. So I think that there's, you know, there, there's sort of low-hanging fruit in this, but I think it's incumbent upon us as we go through middle age to raise the next generation better. Um, I think some of it they're figuring out on their own. If you look at Gen Z polls about, you know, about guns and, and you know, the generation that's most impacted by these school shootings, they feel very differently than your 55-year-old white male. Yeah, yeah. I just did scholarship interviews for, you know, a pretty, pretty elite scholarship. And when I got to my second kid, I'm going to get choked up saying this. When I got to the second kid who had been 
affected by a mass shooting in their community, I just, uh, you know, I just lost it. Um, you're right. A lot of it, a lot of the mess we've created, they're going to have to clean up. Last question, Dan. Yeah. When are you coming back on on Twitter? It's it's not the same there without you. <laughs> Twitter was, uh, did, you, did you ever meet Mike Madrid? Yeah. So Mike, Mike was, uh, he's like a former, you know, a never Trump Republican guy. And he tweeted, this is why I left Twitter, okay? I left Twitter because Madrid tweeted, hey, all you people who, you know, are staying on Twitter now that Elon took it and are, you know, you're in it for the likes and, you know, you like, you've, you've built up this following and all this kind of stuff. You're doing the same thing the Republicans did. You're doing the same thing Josh Hawley did. And I was like, you know what? He's right, man. So, you know, I, I'm not in a rush to get back on Twitter. Um, I've been reading more books, Ken. So, well, uh, you know, things are things are good in that sense. But, um, yeah, you know, never say never, but uh, I'm not missing Twitter right now. Well, you're a better man than I, Dan Barkov, but I think, I think most people know that. Um, I did check, though, your, uh, your video... Um, just sticking it to Trump has seven and a half million views. So it, it keeps ratcheting up. I think we'll post that in the in the show notes. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, Ken. I appreciate it, man. You bet. Thanks again to Dan for joining me. You can no longer follow him on Twitter at dbarkov. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolofman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.